Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, July the 18th, 2012, and this is episode 944 of the Survival Podcast. I have a cool episode for you today. Uh, a lot of you guys want, I want a beekeeping episode, I want a beekeeping episode. So I put out a thing and said, if you're a beekeeper and you want to be on the show, um, let me know, fill out the guest form and we'll get you on the show. Well, the beekeepers showed up like a swarm of bees, man. They're like, everywhere, beekeepers. Uh, I think we got over a dozen beekeepers that you know, said, hey, I want to be on the show. I think we've tried to book most of them, but we spread them way out, like all the way out into December. But there was one guy when he came in, I said, I want him to go first. I want him to go first because he's been a longtime friend of the show. He's from across the pond over in England. And his name is Phil Chandler, and he's also better known online as the Barefoot Beekeeper. He has a special ebook on building top bar hives that's available free to MSB members. And uh, we've got that in the MSB for you. And so he gave that to us, I don't know, God, I guess, two years ago. So when I knew he was that long of a listener, I put him at the front of the line. We have all the other beekeepers lined up, like bees coming to pollinate the flowers. But uh, Phil gets to go first because of his longtime history with the show and supporting the MSB now for over two years. Before I bring Phil on, though, let me go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project. Did you know you can vote with your feet? There's a lot of ways that we vote other than when we go to the ballot box and click a link or punch a shad or check a box or make an X or however your uh, area does it. One way we can vote is we vote with dollars. If you don't like a company, buy from another company. That's voting. Actually, it's a lot more effective than the modern uh, balloting system, I think, is currently right now. But this is a federal republic. Right? This is not a democracy that we live in, folks. It's a, it's a democratically elected government overseeing a federal republic, which means the states are supposed to compete with each other. So one day a bunch of smart people got together and decided, what if we got like 10,000, 20,000 people and we all moved them to one state with all a liberty-oriented mindset and trying to take control at the state level and take liberty back at the state level and tell the state, hey, okay, now that we've taken over, you guys stand up to the feds and let's restore the republic. That's what the Free State Project is all about, and they chose New Hampshire. And you can vote with your feet by moving to New Hampshire. If you like the work they're doing, and understand that the work the Free State Project is doing in New Hampshire is a beacon or a, a, an example to all of us of what we can do in our own states. And their success is our success. Because that's how a republic works. The most successful ideas prove out, and other states emulate the ideas of the successful states. That's how, that's how those crazy guys, the founding fathers, actually thought when they created a republic instead of a democracy. So, so you can help them by financially helping them, by going to their events, uh, by doing activist work on their behalf, and still doing it in your own backyard. For some of us, we'd like to move to New Hampshire, but it's not in the cards. That's me. I'd love to live with those guys, but Texas is my real home at heart, so I'll be there, right? You'll be wherever you want to be, but you can vote with your feet and make New Hampshire that place where you can simply support their work. And remember, the Free State Project is the one sponsor I have that they don't sponsor the show. I gave them a sponsorship slot because I believe so much in what they're doing. 
Uh, next up will be Harvest Eating with the really cool, kick-ass dude named Chef Keith Snow. You know, I talk about all this stuff to grow in your garden, all this permaculture stuff. Go to CSAs and get involved in, with your local farmers and buy from farmers markets. Then all of a sudden you end up with all this food that you've never dealt with before because it's not in a box and it doesn't say, place in microwave for 2 minutes and 30 seconds and hit start. Rotate halfway around in microwave. It doesn't say that. It's just like this big, beautiful pile of food. You go, what do I do with all this? Or even if you know what to do with it, after a while you're like, okay, we've eaten that enough times now. How do we add variety to it? Well, you get over to Harvest Eating. You get some of Chef Keith's seasonings, and you start paying attention to his cooking show on RFD TV. You start paying attention to his YouTube videos. You read his blog. You become a member, and he teaches you how to make cooking a life skill and cook seasonally and locally, and you add that to your ability to be more prepared, more self-sufficient, and more self-reliant. The average family could put a lot of money in the bank by cooking one extra meal at home every month instead of going out to eat. That alone makes the economic case for developing your cooking skills, so you look forward to doing it and teach your kids. Chef Keith is the place to start for all that, and make sure you get some of his seasoning. Low and slow barbecue and Montreal steak now are tied for my favorites. All right, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. Before you sign up, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Inside the subject line, put service discount. And then in the body of the email, tell me who you are and what you did or who you are and what you're doing. And I will send you a special discount to thank you for your service. And please remember, just be brief a couple sentences. Don't send me a CV with 20 years of service on it. I don't need that much. Just tell me, you know, I was, at this, I was in this branch and I did this. This is my job. That's all I need to know. And yes, like if you're a first responder, like a paramedic or something like that, you qualify for this discount as well. So uh, if you want to support the show, uh, you can get the discount. If you don't qualify for the discount, you can still support the show. And the regular price of $50 a year comes out to $0.18.3 an episode. And it is the primary way we pay the bills around here. So do consider joining if you really like having TSP be part of your life. All right, with that, I've got everything wrapped up. I'm ready to bring on our special guest. Again, his name is Phil Chandler, also known as the Barefoot Beekeeper, who keeps bees the natural way and tries to think about what's good for the bees and then let the beekeeper adapt instead of what's good for the beekeeper and let the bees adapt. I think that would be one way he would sum it up. And with that, hey, Phil, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thanks, Jack. It's good to talk to you. Well, hey, I put out like a request to get some beekeeper people on, and I got like a bazillion beekeepers that showed up out of the honeycomb, I guess, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, I want to get as many of them on as I can. I can't put them all back to back. But we put you on first because as soon as I saw you wanted to be on the show and how, I know how long you've been listening. And, of course, you have an ebook called uh, uh, The Barefoot Beekeeper that you sell, but you also have like an addendum to it called How to Build a Top Bar Hive. And you've been making that available to our MSB members for dang near ever. So I put <laughs> you to the front of the line right away and told Dorothy to get you on uh, as soon as possible. So, so thanks for being here today, man. That's great. I really, really appreciate uh, the opportunity. So you do what you call natural beekeeping. But mm -hmm. Kind of before we even get into what that is about, could you just start off with whether you want to keep bees or not, what makes them so important to all of us? Oh, well, I mean, you know, bees have been around for an awful lot longer than we have. I mean, estimates say, you know, something like 130 million years. 
and we've barely made it as a species to the first million yet. So, you know, bees have been evolving all that time with the flowering plants. And, and what I always start off by saying to people is that, that bees and flowering plants are really so intimately part of the same system that you cannot think of them as two separate entities, you know. They're so completely dependent on each other. So everything that flowers out there um, is, is there because it's been selected by bees. And bees are there because the flowers have chosen, if you like, to feed them. With, their, with the nectar and with the pollen. So there's a very intimate relationship between the flowers and the bees that, that it takes you know, a, little bit of, uh, uh, a little bit of time to, to get to a deep understanding of because it is a very, very special relationship. Well, absolutely. And you do this, like I said, this natural beekeeping. You call yourself the barefoot beekeeper. <laughs> and uh, so obviously it, to, to go out and come up with your own methodology and what have you when... You know, there's, you can go to online and buy hives and buy bees and buy supers and buy everything off the shelf and it's all standardized and you, you do things kind of a different way. You must then think there's some problems with the modern beekeeping methods and methodologies. So what, what are they doing wrong? How is it, and what is it causing to happen? Sure. Well, I never suspected that there was anything wrong. You know, when, when I first took up beekeeping, I just did, you know, pretty much what everybody does. You know, you buy some hives and you get some bees and you put the two things together and you follow the instructions because, you know, you go to people who know more than you do and you kind of take on board what they say and, you know, and then you get them into the hive and then you start watching what's going on and you start thinking, well, you know, this is my story. I started looking at what was going on in the hive and I'm, I'm thinking, well, what's all this, you know, why have we got all this extra woodwork in there? You know, it's like these, these bees can build their comb and they, uh, they can bring in their food and they can get their queen to lay eggs and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, they've been doing this for a heck of a long time. And As you said, 130 million years they've yeah, been yeah. out with a hollow tree and all of a sudden now they need a box. Right, exactly. It's like they've got on all this time without us. And now we're trying to tell them what to do. <laughs> well, that's what it seemed, you know. And so they know a heck of a lot more about the world than we do in, in many ways. They know a lot about, more about their world than we do. And, you know, more and more we, we start learning new things. You know, you get, you get there's nowadays the, with the instrumentation that's available to scientists now, they can actually put you know, things like infrared in the hive and they can put audio recording equipment and thermo recording equipment in there and they can learn an awful lot about what's going on in there from from all sorts of different angles and it's not just about just kind of watching the bees do their stuff you know and now we're getting to beginning to get some sort of understanding about the stuff that goes on at a bacterial level in there and and all the little um all the little things that live in there alongside the bees that we just never suspected before and the these are the sort of sorts of things that make you think well you know, have we really got it right? Have, are we really doing the right thing by just uh, trying to control their behavior in such a uh, restrictive way? And so I, I kind of started thinking, well, well, you know, isn't there some way of keeping bees that doesn't require all this kind of extra, all these wooden frames, you know, and all this foundation that we put in there and all these wires and all this stuff? And so I just started looking back at some of the earlier ways of keeping bees and uh, while a lot of them had their limitations for sure um, I came across these things called top bar hives 
and they were fairly novel at that time. This we're talking a dozen years ago now, twelve years ago, and there was hardly anybody was using them. There were a couple of people in the states. There was uh, Marty Hardison, I think, and Dennis Setterfield, and a couple of others. Uh, Michael Bush, I think, were using them in the USA, and. Nobody was using them in Britain. I don't think anybody had them here, except maybe one or two people that had maybe been to Africa for a while and come back and were kind of trying them out as a novelty. But it seemed to me that the top bar hive was the one type of hive that allowed the bees to um, to, 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 to go through their whole range of natural behavior and um, without without really human interference so much as just, you know, we're providing them with a box to live in and they're doing their thing and then we're coming along and if there's a bit of spare honey there, then we can take some spare honey. But we're not kind of milking them. We're not, we're not, we're not forcing them into a situation where they've got to produce a load of honey for us, you know. We're just letting them do their thing and taking some surplus when there's some available. So that was the kind of essence of it, really. That's what got me started in it. So when we do top bar, what makes it different from a management standpoint? Because I've looked at it, and I, I don't keep bees yet. It's something I'm kind of holding off on until we get our, our, our new farm that we're looking to buy now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, you know, you look at the like the Langstrom hives, and, you know, when they want to pull something out, they just kind of grab onto it and pull it out. And mm-hmm. it seems like there's a little bit more effort that has to, a little more care that has to be taken because you don't want the comb if it's stuck to the inner sides of the box. So is it is it a lot more work to manage, or in the end, does it end up being actually easier? I would say it's easier. I would say it's definitely less work um, because you, yes, you have to be more careful because the individual cones don't have the frame around them, so there's no support. You're just, you're just using cone, which is attached to the top bar, um, which is fine if you're careful. Now, people who've used uh, Langstroth-type hives, movable frame hives, and nothing else, are used to being able to be fairly rough with comb. You know, they can, they can lift it out and turn it upside down, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you learn in a top bar hive, you have to kind of relearn those actions, which is why it's often easier to teach people from scratch that have never been near a beehive before, uh, because then they have no expectations. You know, um, it's the the people who've been using standard equipment for a long time. They're actually the most difficult to teach because you've actually got them to forget what everything they know and relearn how to handle bees. But once you've got that bit right. Um, the, the great thing about top bar hives is there's no heavy lifting involved. You don't have to lift boxes in order to get at the bees. And um, the, the, the one thing that you have to do with any of the Langstroth variants um, is that you, in order to see what's going on in a hive, you have to actually dismantle the hive. You have to take, first of all, you have to rip the roof off, and then you have to take boxes off, which basically exposes all the bees in the hive to the outside air. Now, that didn't ever used to be thought of as a real problem, and, and, and I guess maybe some people still don't think it's a problem, but we're coming to recognize now through um, researchers both in the USA and Europe that um, it actually very much is a problem. It can be a problem for the bees to expose them to the outside air too much. So um, you know, that, that's one of the things about top bar hive is you can manage the bees um, and, even, and maybe manage isn't even the right word. You know, maybe it's more about supervising them rather than managing them. But you can do it with minimum disturbance to the activities of the bees. 
Well, that makes sense. And I mean, I think that like today in Africa, it's 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 widely used. It's like the primary way that people that keep bees in, in like tribal areas and all do it, isn't it? They do, yeah. Um, they often use uh, log hives are still widely used in Africa, and they are really kind of the forerunner of the top of our hive. Um, they're usually hoisted up into trees, and the African bee is quite a swarmy bee, so they can rely on swarms just moving into a hive, and then they'll, when there's honey, they'll take it down and, and pretty much evict the bees um, in order to get the honey out. So the top bar hive was really evolved to, uh, at least, should we say, the modern top bar hive was evolved to um, overcome the problems of um, of the log hive and making it less of a disturbance for the bees and easier for the beekeeper to manage. So. Uh, the, the, the top bar hive that people are familiar with, you know, the Kenyan, what we call Kenyan top bar hive, the one with sloped sides, which is the one that's, I think, most frequently used and the one I designed, I based my design on. Um, that one was developed largely in Africa for use in that kind of climate. And, and we've just really adapted it for use in uh, more northern climates where, you know, it ain't so necessarily so warm, um, which is some people's concern about that particular type of hive that it's only suitable for warm climates but in fact we've proved that it's that it's much more versatile than was originally thought one of the biggest concerns i'm hearing from people that that keep bees or just care about bees is like colony collapse disorder and things like Mm. that that are going on around the world how much of that do you think is linked to modern agriculture my personal feeling is from having read an awful lot about it and looked at looked at a lot of the research and talked to people about it, my feeling is that it's very much a result of modern agriculture, sadly. I think um, it's a combination of the intensive monocrop-style chemical-based agriculture that is widespread throughout the USA, certainly, and, and, and to, to, to a large extent throughout uh, UK and Europe, and, and increasingly through the rest of the world, um, but also combined, I think, also with, um, shall we say, beekeeper abuse <laughs> of bees, and not necessarily, I don't, I'm not talking about intentional abuse, but, but the, the fact that um, so much of the uh, commercial beekeeping in the USA is based on uh, pollination of crops that are already contaminated with a whole range of pesticides and in the meantime they're being shipped you know thousands of miles around the country and being dosed with um, uh, prophylactic medications you know including um, antibiotics and so on and I think the combination of that plus the plus the GM agricultural system based on um, use of chemicals particularly of course the neonicotinoids and all that combined I think is is just causing the bees just too much too much hardship, too much stress, and I think CCD is the inevitable result of that kind of system. Because, I mean, bees were not meant to have their hive picked up, put in the back of a truck, and, and then be driven a hundred or more miles away, left in a field of, you know, white clover, and then picked up and then taken to a a peach nursery and then you have this thing happen to them and I'm not really saying like anybody doing that's malicious or anything I don't think you are either but they just they're not designed to work that way they're designed to to move when they feel like it 
Absolutely. They're, I mean, they're designed pretty much to stay in one place for a, for a whole season and then maybe swarm the next year, you know, send out a swarm and claim a bit more territory. But they're essentially, um, essentially static for most of the time until they choose to move a couple of miles, you know. But they're certainly not designed to, to, to be trucked across whole climate systems, you know. Yeah. <laughs> from kind of Georgia to, 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 to California for the almonds and then across to, to Maine for the for the blueberries and so on. That's that's kind of crazy, really. So I mean that's obviously one thing we need to change. Are there other things you think we need to change in agriculture if we want to uh <clears throat> save the bees? And I think when we I think some people might think this is over dramatic, but when it comes to saving the bees, it's saving ourselves because we kinda need those guys. We certainly do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, like yourself, I think I I would I would love to see many more small scale farmers. I'd love to see much more small holding. I'd love to see the whole food system um, localized and, uh, you know, people become much more tuned in the seasons and and eating stuff that's grown at that time. And. Uh, you know, storing stuff, drying stuff, all those kind of things that you you uh, you, you you recommend, um, rather than this 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 independence on on half a dozen you know major crops like maize and wheat and and rice and you know so so forth and soya of course. Um, I think we have become the slaves of the of the um, agrochemical companies who are the same people who are producing essentially GM seeds now and I think if, if we allow it to go much further down that road uh, we're going to start seeing you know real serious problems I, I think we already are actually I think we're seeing already seeing the, the results of those kind of uh, excesses but it's, it can only get worse if we allow that, that to go on happening so what do you think people that maybe, because I want to get, as we you know, get into like the second half of the show, so to speak, what, what to do to get started, but for those people that are not going to keep bees, are there some ways that maybe they can, they can help uh, with these issues? Yeah, well, I, I've, um, I, I started a, what I call the Bee Friendly Zone campaign, which is really, uh, it's really just an idea, and it's, it's an idea that I'm trying to get people to take up in their own way. This isn't, a, this isn't something that you have to kind of pay $10 to belong to or anything like that. It's just an idea. And the idea of a, of a bee-friendly zone is simply an area that you have control over, which could be as small as a window box in a city, or it could be a garden, or it could be just a patio. It could be a, you know, it could even be a park or a, or a a, a community uh, garden of some some sort, or, or as big as a land area as you have control over, but just by just calling it a bee friendly zone and just doing a couple of simple things. Um, first of all, don't use anything that is toxic to bees. Okay, so so just steer clear of all insecticides or or pesticides of all kinds and herbicides like Roundup. You know, just keep just just, just do not use them. So. Um, the first thing is just keep the place chemical free as much as possible and then the second thing really is just encourage and if necessary plant or replant uh, wild species the old species of flowers that bees have evolved with rather than the the kind of fancy double um, types of flowers that you get from tend to get from nurseries you know the hybrids go for the old varieties go for the cottage varieties the the um, what do you call them uh, you have a name for it in the states particularly heirlooms Heirloom varieties, exactly. Sure. Um, the, the things that bees evolved with, in other words. Um, so those two simple things, don't use pesticides, don't use um, and, and herbicides, I'll lump those together, and do 
plant or at least encourage um, the old varieties of flowers to, to come back. And those, those two things together, um, if you do those two things together, you call your little area of land a bee-friendly zone, put a little sign up saying bee-friendly zone in sure. English, and uh, encourage other people to do the same thing. I think that by that very simple... Um, following that very simple path, I think we could really make a big difference if enough people just, just do it, you know? Yeah, I agree, and I just want to add three things that I always see covered with bees, and two of them, unfortunately, we've gone out of our way to get rid of in most lawns, and one of them, we now have new varieties that don't have nectar and pollen, and the first one is white clover, which mm-hmm. if you put white clover in your lawn, you'll never have to fertilize it because yeah. you'll have all the nitrogen you can ever deal with, and these little white flowers come up, and people freak out with their pretty, and if you look at a field of white clover in the summertime, it will be covered in bees. Absolutely. Two is the dandelion, the mm-hmm. much maligned dandelion. It's food, it's medicine, and it's, 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 uh, the bees love it, and they're one of the first flowers out in the year when they need to get started. And if you have a field full of dandelions, again, you will walk through it and see bees everywhere. And the last one are sunflowers. Uh-huh. I have black oil and gray striped sunflower up right now, and they are always covered with bees and honeybees, bumblebees, mason bees. They're all over those things. And they're so engrossed, you can reach in and touch them while they're feeding, and they, they're like so into the sunflower, they don't even know you're there. They're like, whatever, man. You know, you want to touch my wings, I don't care. <laughs> um, so those three things, to me, are things that we need to bring back. And dandelions used to be everywhere and valued as a pot herb and a medicine. Clover was lawns in America until about 1910. I mean, your lawn had clover if you had a lawn in America. And yeah. sunflowers, they're just too pretty and too useful not to have. So... If we could add those, I think we could do so much. Absolutely, yeah, totally. Couldn't agree more. Those are, those are great things to have. And, and why people why people don't want those on their lawns is completely beyond me. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. why, would you want, why would you want just a flat area of green when you can have you know, things like dandelions and clover in your lawn? You know? Well, I've got nitrogen from my, my clover. I've got yep. dynamic accumulation from my, uh, from my dandelion. And then I can have all the grass I want in between there. Uh, I guess so that uh, my rabbits can come out and eat all of it. And it just, it, it doesn't make sense to me either. But we've kind of talked about the problems and unique uh, concepts of natural beekeeping. But a lot of people listening to the show today are thinking, like, I want to become a beekeeper. And mm-hmm. a lot of them would tend to gravitate toward the conventional stuff because you can buy it off the shelf. It's all okay. set up. There's a million books to tell you what to do. And, but a lot of them are thinking, well, this might be a better way. So if a person never kept bees before in their life, you actually said this is better because then they won't have these preconceived ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, how would they get started? Okay, well, um, as you mentioned the, uh, the free kind of do-it-yourself guide that I published a while ago. That's, that's um, downloadable from your site, and, and the, I think there's a, the, well, there's a version certainly you can download from my site as well, which is this, uh, pretty much the same thing. Um, so, you know, if you're in any way... Uh, handy with a with a with a saw and a, a screwdriver, you can build your own hive very easily, and it's actually much easier to build a top bar hive than it is to build a Langstroth hive because there really are no critical dimensions in a top bar hive. Um, whereas a Langstroth, you've got to take account of the what's called bee space, which is the, the you know the the, the the empty space around the hive. The um, the frame itself has to be a precise dimension, otherwise the frame will get gummed up and so on. So it's very easy to build a top bar hive. Um, there aren't too many people making them yet. I guess there are some in the States. I know um, Christy Hemingway, for example, in Maine, 
Um, she has an outfit called um, Gold Star Honeybees up in Maine, and she she supplies hives and bees in in the Northeast. And I know there are other people around, around the place that do it. There's a guy up in Portland, Oregon, and uh, one or two others, I'm sure. But um, they really are pretty easy things to build. So that would be the first thing I would go. And I know, um, you know, a, a lot of Americans are, are brought up with the idea of, of of doing things for themselves, and which is great. And and it's an easy project to do. You know, if you can put up a decent shelf, then you can build a top bar hive pretty much. Um, and the other thing is we've got a, um, we have got a forum on my website, which is um, biobees.com. There's a forum on there which has oh, well over 6,000 members now from all around the world, a lot, of, a lot of in the States, a lot in Canada, a lot in Australia, New Zealand, as well as Britain, of course, and Europe. Um, and there's a lot of people on there who've been beekeeping for a long time, and they're, they're all very willing to help um, other people get started. And we're also... As a, as a kind of part of that uh, forum, we're really trying to encourage people to set up local groups, local natural beekeeping groups, wherever they happen to be. And that's really starting to pay off now because uh, chances are if you go on the forum, you'll find other people who are you know, not too far from you. I know it's a bigger problem in the States because your distances are much bigger than ours. But nevertheless, um, because people tend to be, by and large, you know, not too far from a population centre, there's often a local group nearby who are prepared to, to help out. And uh, also, I think even now, I'm starting to hear good things from at least some of the conventional beekeeping groups that are around. Um, uh, they're starting to, some of them are starting to change their attitude and starting to welcome the idea of people using top bar hives and not being too, you know, stuck on the idea of conventional hives. So maybe that's changing as well. On the um, concept of like, okay, I've got my my hive built. <laughs> where do I go next? Like, I mean, uh, on sourcing bees, uh, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Yeah, well, this is where there is quite a significant difference between the USA and uh, and, and Britain, because um, over there you seem to have a relatively small number of bee breeders um, supplying a huge number of beekeepers, and um, the standard uh, item seems to be what you, what you call a bee package, which is maybe two or three pounds of bees. With a queen in a cage in a in a box with a you know wire mesh sides and so on, um, and that's kind of sent through. I know it's sent through the U.S. mail or whether it's sent through uh, on, on a train or whatever, but it it, it arrives at the other end, um, mostly intact, and uh, that's what beekeepers in the U.S.A. seem to mostly uh, start with. Now um, over here, the the, the package. Um, as such, is virtually unknown. We don't have them. We've never had them here. I think there are one or two people now starting to do that. But we tend to operate from um, nucleus colonies, so we, we, we call nukes, which are just like a, a small family of bees getting ready to expand to their full size. Um, and nukes tend to be the way that we've we've uh, bought and sold bees over here. Uh, now, of course. The thing is that nukes tend to be on frames, so so getting frames into top bar hives is a whole uh, thing in itself. I mean, I've, there's some videos and stuff on the site, but um, we're just beginning to see the beginnings now of um, people who are willing to breed bees on top bars. So you can actually buy bees 
ready on top bars, ready to go into a top bar hive. And, and that will change, that will develop as years go by and pe more and more people will be doing that. So it will get easier and easier to get bees. But, I mean, my first choice and the thing I always say to beginners if you can is to catch a swarm because a swarm of bees is, um, is, is in the perfect state biologically and, if you like, emotionally to, to get busy and start creating themselves a new home. And so if you can catch a swarm, and I know that's not always possible and it's easier and way easier in some places than others, but if you can catch a swarm, that would be always be my first choice because you get the experience of uh, seeing bees in their kind of wild state and giving them a home and, and start, watching them start from scratch and doing all that incredible stuff that they do with building comb. And uh, that experience is, I think, worthwhile um, you know, it, it's worthwhile just making that little extra effort to to catch a swarm if you can. But I know it sounds like something that would really do you well to have a mentor work with you on, though. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I mean, you can watch videos of people catching swarms till till the cows come home, as we say here. But um, actually, doing it for real is 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 always a bit of a um, a bit of a step out of people's comfort zones because you've got this kind of you know football size clump of, of, of stinging insects there and, and somebody's just told you well it's perfectly okay just to just to hit the branch and drop them into a basket you know <laughs> and there's always a kind of a, a, a <laughs> cognitive dissonance going on there when you think oh my god is that really okay to do that yeah but, and we have these things in America called uh, hybrid uh, African uh, domestic bees that you yeah. can get into real trouble mm -hmm. if you do that with them for sure, yeah, and, and that's that's one of those other places where the U.S. does differ from from us in that, particularly in the southern states. I think, isn't it? You've got uh, yeah, you've got the so-called Africanized bees. They seem to go just a little further north every year, and that's oh, another really? concern that we have all together. And the funny thing is, if you go to Africa, where the the African bee is, and they keep them in hives and have no problems, and yeah. our domestic bees, it was when the two crossed, they came up with this like psychopathic bee. Yeah. Um, it's really insane. Like a guy showed, like they took a piece of leather and they put it into a normal bee colony, and a few bees stung it, and that mm -hmm. was pretty much it. And then they took it away after they upset the bees, and a few came after it, and that, that was it. They put it into an African swarm, and it was just coated with stingers. And then mm. they, they like took it away, and they put it underwater, and the bees were like flying around waiting for it to come back up. So it's, it, it's not as big a problem as TV would make it out to be, but it's an issue. It is oh, yeah. In yeah. Panama, we had a, a swarm one time of Africanized bees under some piping, and they called the uh, like control guys out. And this dude came out, and he looked like he was wearing like a Ghostbusters suit, like with his <laughs> backpack on. And he yeah. pointed this thing at him, and it just went, ah, and they just all—I mean, oh, immediate—I don't know what kind of toxin it was, but they just dropped. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's so it's a concern for sure the the thing that's that seems to have gone wrong there is actually a, a, um the 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 gene that controls the um it's like it's uh, it's like a little switch uh in one of the genes in that bee and it's it's the one that controls the degree to which they defend themselves you know like a, a normal uh, colony of bees will just you know one or two will come out and 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 kind of 
um, you know, kind of headbutt you and, and just give you a kind of first warning. And then if you persist a little bit further, you know, you might get one or two stings. And then worst case, you know, a dozen or two will come out and, and, and sting you if you really insist on hanging around. But with, with the Africanized bees, uh, so-called, the, it's like that switch has been switched off and it's like it's all or nothing you know it's like as soon as they notice you if they see you as a threat they're all out and they're all on you and it's not like their toxin is any worse than any other bee it's just that there's a, they you know that it's just the numbers it's just the numbers of stings you know and the persistence um, like i've said where there's been people yeah, that have been yeah. chased into water sure. and they come up and they're <laughs> waiting for you yeah and they'll yeah. stay there and they'll wait you out you know they're like sooner or later <laughs> you got to come out and we're going to get you it's just yeah. uh it's another case of man screwing around with stuff when you should leave it put. Totally. But we're getting we're getting back into kind of kind of got off topic there just because it's a subject I, I'm interested in. But mm. so we've got our hive. We've either captured our swarm or we if we have to purchase our our bees in these packages we get here in America is putting putting them into a top bar hive pretty much the same as putting them into a conventional <laughs> hive. Is there something extra that we have to do because of the different construction when we're we're putting those bees? into their new home, and hopefully they're going to stay and make a home out of it. Um, I, I think it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, the, the advantage, I guess, with the top bar hive is that you've just got an open space to drop them into, whereas with a conventional hive, you've got a lot of woodwork in there as well. To be honest, I've never handled a package of bees because we just don't have them over here, so you know, I'm, I'm probably not the best one to ask about that. But I know people have got them into top bar hives pretty easily, uh, so you know, I guess it's not so much of a problem. And but you, I'm sure you've established new hives like from swarms and all. Is there certain things we have to do to the hive to to kind of get it started for them? Like, do we have to put anything on the on the bars to get them off the ground, or do they do it all themselves? Or well, they they certainly do. They they can do it all themselves. I I always suggest to people that it's a good idea to make the the hive smell right. You know. Um, because bees have a very keen sense of smell. And the most attractive smell to bees is actually old um, honeycomb. You know, in other words, uh, a bee, it smells like bees have been there already. You know, it already smells like it's a, it's a bee home. <clears throat> so um, I, I suggest people always rub the inside of the hive with some beeswax. You know, get a hold of a lump of beeswax from somewhere. And it, buy it if necessary, and just rub it around the woodwork just to, to make the thing smell right for them. And also, if you're trying to catch a swarm, just just have a swarm move into your hive, which does happen. Um, a couple of drops of lemongrass oil or citronella oil uh, in the hive imitates the the queen pheromone quite well. So uh, bees do like that kind of lemony scent. And, and in this country, we have a tradition of rubbing the inside of the hive with a um, with um, lemon balm, which is a, a, you know, a common garden herb, and uh, it has that kind of lemony scent to it. So anything that can make the, the, the hive smell more like a bee house is, is a good thing. And then on the top bars themselves, um, some people use a, uh, a groove cut down the center with a, a line of beeswax in it to act as a guide for the comb. And some people use a kind of wedge shape um, cut on the on the top bar itself, and just rub it with a bit of beeswax again, just to give it the right kind of smell. Um, there's there's lots of variations, and we're to be honest, we're still experimenting with different ways of getting uh, preparing top bars and getting them absolutely as bees like them best. And uh, I would say the most successful shape that we found so far is a is a fairly shallow wedge, 
Um, this was uh, pointed out by a, uh, a German guy on the, on the, on the uh, forum, a guy called Bernard Duvel, who, um, who came to the conclusion by various experiments that a, a kind of 20-degree wedge shape on the, on the top bar was, a, was about the best shape for them, and it allows them to make a really strong attachment to the bar. And the, uh, the edge of the wedge, as it were, gives them the guide to build um, straight comb, which is what makes it easy to, uh, to, lift, to lift the bars in and out, which is the important bit when it comes to inspecting them. When it comes time for extracting honey, what's, what's kind of the <clears throat> procedure there and how does it differ maybe from conventional beekeeping? Sure. Well, I, I like to keep my beekeeping as simple as I possibly can. So... <clears throat> to be honest, I don't bother with extraction. I I like my honey in the comb. You know, I like it as the bees store it actually in the comb, because for several reasons. One is um, it uh, that that's the way that the bees do it, and therefore you know one has to assume that that's <laughs> that that's the kind of best way to to keep honey. Um, the other thing is that um, it does actually undergo chemical changes while it's in the in the honeycomb so it's actually maturing uh, all the time it's in the comb and also because bees bring in different uh, types of honey at different times and also different groups of bees will be foraging on different flowers you can actually get different flavors of honey on the same comb so that to me is a really good reason to keep it in the comb and you can cut the comb up to make it easy to handle but if you just kind of squash some comb with a blade of your knife and spread it in your toast that to me is the easily the best way of eating honey so I don't bother with any extraction equipment I don't have any bottling equipment I don't put it in jars you know it's just literally as it comes out of the hive um, put it in a keep it in a you know like a Tupperware box or something to to keep it, uh, the other you know to keep other bees and wasps and things off it but um, to me, there's no need to actually take it out of the comb at all, and certainly not, certainly not with it, with use of heat, because that ruins honey, uh, and, and and don't filtering it, not filtering it either, because um, if you're eating raw honey from the comb, you're getting the whole benefit. You know, you're getting you're getting a little bit of pollen in there, you're getting a little bit of raw jelly in there. All those kind of things go towards making honey a, a really uh, good medicine, rather than rather than just for like a junk food, which is you know just something else to pile up supermarket shelves with. So, you know, people say that the best honey you'll ever eat is the honey you take out of your own beehive, and I completely think that's the the way to look at it. I'm all for storing it on the comb right up till I want to make mead. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that makes sense. I really never thought about it that way before. But I mean, the bees store it that way, and <laughs> one of the real advantages as a beekeeper in, in, in producing honey is you have a, a food with basically an infinite shelf life. It's designed to be that way. For sure, yeah. And I guess and I really leave think it alone, it stays that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, I, part of this whole thing of, 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 of changing our attitudes towards bees and towards honey is, um, is, is no longer regarding honey as just another mass-produced food product. You know, just, it's not just something else to, to stack supermarket shelves with. I, I, I really think we should start thinking about honey more as a medicine than as a food. You know, it's not just a substitute for corn syrup or, or, or you know, some other sweetener. It's, it's a very special um, food with a, with a, a lot of um, benefits beyond just simple um, carbohydrate nutrition, you know. 
Well, to, I mean, to me, you, you could make this statement, and it was, it's absolutely factual. There's absolutely nothing else like it in the world. For there, sure. There is no substitute for honey. You, know, you can get substitutes for sweetener, but you really can't substitute anything for honey and get the same makeup, benefits, uh, minerals, components, nutritional value. Nothing really fills that niche other than honey. Absolutely. And so I we think need to people, treat it a little bit more special than just as another, oh yeah. like you're saying, commodity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think people who have only ever tasted supermarket honey have got a real treat in store when they get to taste their first you know, honey straight out, out of the comb. I, I think that's really quite a special experience. Um, and you really can't compare the stuff that you get in most supermarkets with, with the, the real thing. Now, they need the honey, too, right? The bees, that's why they don't mm -hmm. make it because they like us, and they're like, look, if we, if we make the guy honey, he'll make us a box. They do it mm -hmm. because it's their food, too. It's what they live on. So okay. how do we know how much we can take and when we can take it without doing harm to the, the producer, right? Because mm -hmm. we're the consumer. They're the producer. It's kind of a role reversal here. They're the doing all the work, and we're getting the benefit. So how do we balance that so that we're being good stewards? Absolutely, yeah. Well, this of course is always um, this is always a judgment because the the biggest variable in beekeeping is the weather. And if you get a really good season, you get a lot of honey. And if you you know if you get a season like we're having here, uh, which is like wet <laughs> forever, um, you know the chances of getting any anything more than a, a few spoons full of honey this year are pretty remote at the moment. But you can never tell because things may change and, and come September we might get a um, what we call an Indian summer. I don't know what expression you have for it over there, but uh, a late exactly summer. Exactly what we call it. Yeah, sure. Well, a late summer, which, which may happen, we hope. Um, and then you can get a late run of, uh, you know, a late flow of nectar and, and the bees can be fine. And, you know, you could get a, a, a lot of honey come in towards the end of the year. But in the normal course of events, um, what tends to happen is that commercial beekeepers certainly and a lot of amateur beekeepers tend to take honey uh, this, is, this of course applies to the northern hemisphere tend to take honey in um, say early June and because if for no other reason that there's a lot of honey right there to be taken and then they put the empties back for the bees to refill well if you take all the honey in early June it means that that honey that the bees put there in order to mature for the winter months is no longer going to do that because it's, it's gone. So they're going to then have to stock up on late flowering plants in order to get themselves through the winter. And this is one potential cause of, of, of problems. But um, then along comes, uh, you know, towards the end of, uh, typically over here towards the end of August, um, beekeepers will go for the second crop if there's, you know, the weather's right, and then they'll take all the honey that the bees have just stored uh, in the supers for, for winter, and then they'll start feeding back the sugar syrup, which of course is, you know, a, a crude analog for, for, for nectar. It's which bees can get by on for a while, but it's not. It's really not a substitute for for proper honey because it doesn't contain all those extra little bits and pieces that honey does contain. So nowadays, what I tend to do is pretty much leave the bees all their own honey for the winter and I don't take anything until the spring until I'm sure that there's enough stuff in flower out there so they can replace anything I take um, at that time of year and that way the honey has gone through the winter so it's had a chance to mature 
um, the bees have got some fresh stuff coming in. They always prefer to eat nectar to honey anyway. So if there's nectar out there on the flowers, they'll, they'll go out and get that, regardless of how much honey they've got in their hive. So at that time, you can be reasonably sure that it's safe to take, take the honey off. So that's the way I tend to do it. You know? And if there's, a bit, if, there's, if there's a lot of honey in the, in the hive in the summer, I'll take maybe one or two combs just you know, because they seem to have plenty. But generally, I'll try and leave it for them and uh, till they're safely through the winter and then I can take the excess. Well, that makes perfect sense. And uh, what are your thoughts on planting specific forage crops? Like I know <laughs> I, I've not ever actually seen this plant, but one of the things Mollison has written a lot about down in Australia is something called leatherwood. And it's supposed uh-huh. to be this huge flowering tree that's just this awesome forage crop for, for bees. Are there any specific forage crops that you think, like, you know, a person has <clears> five or six acres, they could dedicate some portion of it as a forage crop? Sure, yes, you could. Um, leatherwood, of course, is the, uh, I think, a major crop in Tasmania. I think that's, that's where they get most of their honey from. Um, but yes, I guess Australia as well in that case. But, uh, yeah, you, you, I mean, you need a fair bit of land to, to, to plant just for bees and I would say for most people it would be better to plant things that have other uses as well um, but things that you would tend to eat after they've been in flower so obviously it would be things like top fruit um, I guess squash and, and, and all that, that family um, and if you wanted to if I mean let's say for example you were doing green manuring um, you might want to plant something like Phacelia. Um The Latin name is um, Phacelia tanacetifolia, which is used as a um, widely used in Europe as a, as a, as a uh, green manure crop. So it's cut after it's flowered and then manured, uh, used as um, you know, composted and put back on as uh, as green manure, um, or just left left and cut in place and just left to drop and then it goes back into the soil like that. Um, that would be a good one. Um, other than that, things like beans, um, bees love uh, bean flowers, um, and um, there's a whole there's a whole list of food crops that that bees will pollinate, of course. Um, but yeah, sure, if you've got the land, if you've got enough space to to grow things just for bees, then then go ahead. And of course, don't forget the trees. You know, trees. There are certain trees that bees absolutely love. Even even things like sycamore, which people don't think of as having a, a, a much of a use. Um, do, you, do you have widespread sycamore in the USA? I, can't, I don't know. We do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, people think of sycamore as being a fairly useless tree, but in fact, if you find a sycamore in flower on a hot June day, uh, it'll be absolutely covered in bees and uh, lime trees as well, small leaf lime, and uh, in, of course, willow for early pollen is 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 a is a great tree to have. Um, and I guess there are certain, there are there are trees that grow more and more widespread in the USA than than here that uh, that you will know about more than I do. Um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like the the fruitless pears, they don't seem to be really wild about them. There's probably not much to the even though they get covered in flowers every spring. There's mm-hmm. not much to them, but it's not so, all of nectar there. No. Yeah, some of the things I've seen them really dig here is one is buckwheat, and you can get three or uh-huh. four crops a year for green manure out of buckwheat and. They go freaking batshit crazy over that, and yeah. you can get buckwheat standing with flour on it from seed in about four weeks in the summertime. So that's been a good one. And you were mentioning some of the you know like things that you plant for your garden. What yeah. I've seen them going crazy on this year. You mentioned squash. 
but mm-hmm. also watermelon and cantaloupe because oh, yeah. there's like for every female blossom there's like a hundred male blossoms and the cucumbers, the cantaloupe, and my watermelon are covered with bees all day long, every day throughout the summer. So those are things that we get a yield from, they get a yield from, and they're the squash. There's a lot of pest problems within the states right now, but um, the uh, cantaloupe and watermelon. The only problem I have with cantaloupe and watermelon is deer eating them. Uh, uh-huh. uh, there's no pest problems I've had with either one of those. So to me, those are some things that if you've got some space that you could grow some food on, that you'd get a lot of action with your bees too. Oh, yeah. So where can people learn more about you, your book, your forum, all that good stuff? Uh, well, the website is uh, biobees.com, B-I-O-Bees.com. And uh, all my stuff's on there, and the forum is, is just biobees.com slash forum. So that's easy to find, and there's a link, obviously, from the front page. Um, yeah, loads of stuff on there to read. Um, highly recommend the forum for people who are starting out, because there's a lot of help there. Um, we're always willing to answer questions and help people along. So, yeah, by all means, help yourselves. <laughs> so before I let you go, what about the big question people ask? Am I going to get stung? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> it's a simple, the simple answer is yes, you are. Hopefully not too much. Um, you know, I, I always tell people just to dress in a way that allows you to feel comfortable and safe to start with. And then as you become more confident, Assuming you've got the right kind of bees, you know, the, the good-tempered ones, <laughs> um, you'll get confident enough to work without gloves in, in time. And, uh, you know, maybe you don't need to necessarily full suit on. I would always say, you know, wear a hat and a veil as a minimum because you really don't want to get stung in the eye. Mm. You know, um, I, I had a bee flick a, a drop of venom to my eye once, um, and it, I was in agony for two hours. Oh, wow. just, that was just one drop of venom. It wasn't even a sting. You know, it just a bee flew past me and just <laughs> got me in the <laughs> eye. And uh, you know, you really do not want to get stung in the eye. You, you can blind you. And wow. most people don't want to get stung on the face because it, well, for a start, it hurts. But also, you end up looking like Elephant Man for a day or two. <laughs> yeah. But you know, hat and a veil as a minimum. And then, if your bees are uh, comfortable to work with, you can you can do without the gloves and things. Okay. And I've noticed that when you get a sting or two on the arm or the hand or whatever, it's not that big a deal. It's it, a, a honeybee sting to me is not the equivalent of getting stung by like a paper wasp or a red wasp or something. Those buggers hurt. A bee sting, mm. it's I, I I got two two uh, red ants nailed me on the foot yesterday when I was ah. walking through my garden. And that hurt more than the last mm, bee sting yeah. I got. So I, I wouldn't overreact to it, but I've been with you on the face thing. I, I'd prefer that they stay out of my eyes and my nose and yeah, my yeah. ears. Um, yeah. Oh, he is hurt too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that's not, I mean, there are some people who are, you know, who have an anaphylactic reaction, and we have sure. to just acknowledge that there, are, there is a small percentage of people who will um, react very badly to these things, and they'll feel faint, and they'll, they'll have difficulty breathing, and their throat will go... Uh, red and they won't be able to swallow and you know if if nothing is done they'll they'll die you yeah <laughs> you really have to be aware that if that is a possibility you know, if you've had any kind of uh history of um of allergy to to, to insect stings you really got to be a little bit careful to start with uh with bees and make sure that you've got somebody with you make sure they've got a mobile phone with you and uh, just take the basic precautions but you know by and large most people um after you've gotten over the 
the, the pain. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a bit of redness and itchiness, and that's it. And you know, pain is pain is good for us to for, to a point. You know, <laughs> you can learn a lot from pain. <laughs> and, and the uh, the the our, our ancestors who uh, who got bee combs out of trees didn't have suits and smokers and all that other stuff. Oh, real quick before you go, your thoughts on use of smoke? Personally, I don't use smoke anymore. I haven't done it for several years. Um, and because, for, for, for a number of reasons, but simply because I, I don't like breathing it myself. Okay. I don't see why the bees should want to have to breathe it. I don't like the hive smelling of smoke because it really shouldn't. You know, it really, a beehive should smell really of honey and pollen and nice things. Um, and because a lot of bees don't don't really re- respond well to smoke anyway, you know some bees actually get uh, more bad tempered on smoke than than not. So I tend to use a, a water spray with a couple of drops of peppermint oil in it just to mask the alarm pheromone, and I find that's enough. You know, okay. some people I know prefer to use smoke, and as long as you're very careful with it and don't use too much, it's okay. If you want to do that, well, that's fine. I know but, you'd piss uh, me off if you sprayed smoke in my living room. Yeah, I'd be mad sure. as hell. Right? Peppermint oil? I'm kind of cool with peppermint oil, but smoke, yeah. that would upset me. So cool stuff, man. Remember, folks, the uh, website is biobees.com. I'll have a link to that along with uh, with Phil's forum in the show notes. Remember, you can get uh, the download for how to build a top bar hive. Uh, in the MSB, if you're an MSB member, it's also available at Phil's site if you just go on over there. And then you have a book as well that people can purchase, right? Uh, yeah, the book's called The Barefoot Beekeeper. Um, it's um, it, I wrote that five years ago, and, and there's a, I think we're on the third edition now. And uh, I'll be rewriting over the winter <laughs> for the next one. But that's um, that's the, the book, yeah, The Barefoot Beekeeper. And it must be pretty good because it seems like you've sold a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah, I do seem to have, and, and, and I'm, I'm really pleased that it's taken off so well. I mean, uh, I, nothing surprised me more than when people started buying it, you know. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, I wrote it just because, you know, it's something I just have to do. And, uh, you know, thank goodness people have, have taken it on board, and, uh, and it seems to have uh, kicked something off. So I'm very happy that people are finding it useful and finding it a good way to get into beekeeping. Well, Phil, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for all your work, and uh, thanks for taking time to visit with us today on the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jack. It's been a pleasure. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Phil Chandler, the barefoot beekeeper, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Nobody up there cares. They're living for. 